I'm Luke Story. For the past 22 years, I've been relentlessly committed to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of spirituality, health, psychology, and personal development. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. I'd like to take a moment to talk about EMF or electromagnetic frequencies. Now, if you're a regular listener to this show, you are no stranger to the topic because I've covered it with so many of our past guests. You're probably aware of the dangers of EMF exposure in your home, but you have no idea where to start when it comes to fixing it. You might be concerned about your exposure to the current 3G, 4G, and 5G wireless networks now active in most major cities. You might have even attempted to test the levels in your home yourself with EMF meters you found online and just became frustrated and confused and kind of gave up on the project. Well, same story here. That's why I created the EMF Home Assessment Masterclass with my friend Brian Hoyer. I've been passionate about this topic for many years, and I finally took it upon myself to take all of the information that I've gained and create an amazing video course about it. Now, this is going to be released in the coming weeks, so I wanted to give you a heads up on it. You can go to lukestory.com slash EMF Masterclass. That's lukestory.com EMF Masterclass and sign up for the wait list. You can also text on a U.S. phone the word EMF Masterclass to the number 44222. So again, you can text EMF Masterclass to 44222 or go to lukestory.com forward slash EMF Masterclass and you will have the opportunity to enter the wait list. And when you do so, you're going to save 100 bucks off the course. Yes, that's right. This is over four hours of content. There's seven modules, six bonus videos. And in this particular course, you're going to learn everything, literally everything you could have ever wanted to know about not only how to find the EMF in your home, but how to fix it. It's pretty awesome. So again, go to lukestory.com forward slash EMF masterclass. Or using a U.S. phone, you can text the word EMF Masterclass to the number 44222. This is a special bonus rebroadcast episode of my recent appearance on the Align podcast with Aaron Alexander, where we talk about the wisdom cultivated through overcoming my personal addiction and trauma and developing my relationship with my higher self. We also talk about big tech censorship my outlook on why we pollute the earth and the effects of 5G and radiation on our bodies. We then dive into a very meaningful and deep conversation on why we become addicts in the first place, how to break our cycles of addiction, the karmic effect of how we live our lives, and how it ties into our spiritual evolution. So sit back and enjoy as Aaron Alexander interviews me inside his sauna. And make sure to join me again for our regular programming on Tuesday, Stone by Stone, The Pathway to Enlightenment with Panache Desai. Thanks for listening. If you like the episode, share it with a friend. And by all means, make sure to subscribe to Aaron's podcast. It's one of my favorites. What is the big tech censorship? Big tech. Big tech censorship. Yeah, they, you know, they're kicking all these people offline for having different points of view that are differ from the social justice warriors that run all of those tech organizations and things like that. Mm. So alternative health and 
things they deem to be not fact checked and things like that. Yeah. What do you, you think? Know the- Alex Jones is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. yeah. So they deplatformed Alex Jones. Like within right. a 24 hour period, he was taken off. His app got deleted from iTunes, his podcast, uh, his Facebook pages, his YouTube channel, his Twitter and his Instagram. They all concerted together and just poofed him into non-existence. Mm which is really terrifying because what happens next is people that are a bit more moderate than Alex Jones start to get taken down. And it's happening now. You have your Jordan Petersons and other people that are being censored that aren't doing anything weird at all. And the people on the left are all cheerleaders of this because they're typically people um, that are more conservative leaning. Yeah. I mean, I guess usually Alex Jones is about as conservative leaning as you get. Um, Perhaps, but then what they don't realize is down the road, then once you set that in motion, then it sets a precedent for anyone that the powers that be disagree with to be deplatformed. Yeah. You know, and so you might be like, oh, I hate that guy anyway. Fuck him. Yeah, take all his stuff down. It's going to be you next. Yeah, that's the beginning of the end. Yeah, yeah. That's and, and, and throughout history, anytime there's been repression of points of view and information and free speech, it always ends up in jailing the intellectuals burning the books all this kind of stuff you know? yeah but they start with the most fringe person who is easy for everyone to kind of get on board with ah, yeah fuck that guy they're weird and i don't like their point of view anyway you know it's interesting how many times uh, this has happened throughout history like everything works in cycles mm-hmm. i recently got all hot and bothered about watching ancient aliens speaking of oh man i want to watch that dude it's so good (laughs) oh cool i love that one of one of the episodes is all about um uh ancient under uh, underwater worlds oh cool and so it goes into these various different societies that you can literally like scuba dive down now you know and there's like places outside of india places in the bermuda triangle and outside of greece and like you know the city of atlantis is like the the really notorious you know Mm -hmm. mythological but potentially real place that people know about but there's places just like that all around the world ranging from being like 60 feet underwater to like half a mile underwater and you go down there and there's like these huge temples with these perfect precision cut blocks and you know going beyond what you know technology today would even be able to uh, at least easily do let alone do it all yeah you know, and we have this sense of like, okay, 10,000 years ago was, you know, the beginning of the agrarian age. And before that, we were just hunter, gatherer, ancestors, all this stuff. I was like, or maybe we were like really advanced societies. Right. <laughs> Right, <laughs> and this is and this has all happened over and over and over again. <laughs> well, that you know, that's the interesting thing, and this this is something I observe somewhat with the kind of alarmist uh, environmentalism. And saying that as someone, as you know, I mean, I'm obsessed with nature. I don't like. I've never littered in my entire life. You know, I, I love the environment. I love Mother Earth. I'm very much in tune with it. And I, I do everything I can within my, you know, personal means to leave it better than I found it. But sometimes I think about um, this, like, oh, the world's going to end in this year, which they've been saying for the past 20 years, and it never happens, by the way. But, um, you know, we, I don't want to get into a global warming debate, but uh, the thing that... <laughs> well, human world might end. Well, the thing The that, world won't yeah, end. Exactly. Like, See, Earth, I don't think, no, gives that many shits about no, humanity. No, if you... If you if, <laughs> it will keep marching. If you zoom out from planet Earth <laughs> and you look at all of the structures, all the factories, all the nuclear power plants, all the airplanes, all the 
human settlement and civilization, it's literally like a bacterial film on the surface of the earth. Sure. And the earth makes one little shift on its axis or a meteor or any cataclysmic event happens. All records of everything going on now is all gone. And we just get swallowed into the earth as these other, you know, ancient civilizations appear to have been yeah. to some degree. But that's not an excuse to like trash the environment. It's just like, dude, we're not that important. I think it's the self-importance of of humans. Um, well, I think it's interesting, like when you're trashing the environment, I think you are... You're, you, it's a direct reflection of your perception of yourself. And if you're a person, you know, with like when you see, you, you very rarely see like a kombucha container littered on the ground. Oh, you'll that's very, funny. Yeah, you'll yeah, very yeah. often see like a, you know, a highball keystone or light. Yeah, keystone <laughs> light or monster energy or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. You that's know, funny. So you're, you're seeing like that kind of demographic or education level or kind of like outlook on the world, like that, that individual is the person's like, okay, well, I, put this into my body, which could be argued as, as fairly pollutive. And then I directly say, okay, cool. I'll pollute the earth body. You know, and it's like that yeah. perception is the thing. And I think that's because like you literally are the earth, you know, there's no, like you are just this direct extension of that. And so the way that you treat your community, the way that you treat your relationships, the way that you treat soil in your, you know, when you're in your state in your yard, I think that literally is like directly in reference of your perception of yourself. Yeah. It's funny back in the, uh, I don't see this much anymore. I'm sure it happens based on the amount of fucking garbage all around Hollywood and LA proper. But back in the day, I'd be driving around and I would see the car in front of me <clears throat> take like a full empty McDonald's, you know, like a McDonald's bag and just like huck it out I the window. I used to do that as a kid. Well, yeah. That was and, my belief. But system. I would get super pissed and, and at times admittedly, and I'm not, I'm not proud of this, but I would sort of hmm, demographically, racially profile the people, you know, because yeah. it would typically like not be someone that looked like me doing that. Now, if I was like in a lower income, lower educated area of a bunch of white people, they'll be doing that shit too. But it was just like in LA and this is going back many years. So please no one like ban me from the internet. But um, then I had the realization from a higher perspective that it's like, dude, if I had been born in another country, yeah where my parents didn't teach me how wrong it is to pollute mother earth, I would be doing that shit, you know? Yep. And it's just like, it just has to do with like how you're indoctrinated. When I was a kid, I'm sure there was a point at which I threw a gum wrapper on the ground and my mom proverbially smacked the shit out of me. And I was like, Whoa, bad move. And she explained to me why we don't do that. And then that just became part of me. That doesn't give me license to judge other people that haven't been educated or yeah. culturally indoctrinated in the same way. Yeah. You know? Including like the higher ups and like the, CEO of Monsanto or yeah, Coca-Cola totally, or right, whatever. Right, it's right. very easy for me living in my one bedroom apartment in Santa Monica and, you know, hanging out with my acro yoga friends and like eating steamed kale and shit to be like, oh, like they're out to get us. Yeah. Like my sense is if I, I was dealt the same hand as them and I was in their exact same position, I would be doing the, probably the exact same thing, you yeah, know, cutting corners to please the investors. Yep. You know, and so it's a, it's like it's much I, cheaper to go dump that shit in a river than it is to you know find an alternative means by which to do away with it or, or a new method of manufacturing that doesn't produce as much toxic waste, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. So my sense is, as we create, and these are just like ideas I'm like toying with, but um, if we create um, separation between us and them, whoever them is, I think it just perpetuates the problem. You know, it's like how do we figure out relationship between us and them because they are us. Right. Tell that to Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
the tribal the tribalism <laughs> hub of social media you know i find i find you know i've deleted twitter from my phone i don't even u- use twitter really i mean i don't tweet i i think I, the only thing i really do on twitter is post my my content or my team posts it and then if i find something really compelling about 5g or geoengineering like environmental issues that i actually care about um well not that i don't care about all of them but those are the ones to me that are like duh yeah why are we whining about driving cars meanwhile you know we're killing off all the bees with cell towers um can you talk about that a bit is that something that you have some degree of expertise in oh i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily say expertise uh i think i just have a different point of view and my point of view is as someone who grew up without cellular technology without microwave radiation in the atmosphere in our environment and then seeing how it's like putting the live frog in the water that's cold and boiling the water slowly. The frog doesn't notice. And I think as a species, we're not noticing the environmental impact and the societal impact and the individual mental and physical health impact of filling our environment full of radiation, you know? Mm. And so I just see it as like, when I fly into LAX and I look at the sprawling metropolis and think how many cell towers yeah, are in our environment. And then in each of those buildings, a number of Wi-Fi routers and cell phones and other devices that are quote unquote smart enabled are then not only pinging that radiation from all the towers, but creating their own radiation to transmit also, you know, and we're in this soup and then you start to look at the science on what happens to your biology when you're exposed to radiation. And it's crazy because I just saw, speaking of Twitter a couple of days ago, but I'm in this, I'm in this bubble where everyone I know, all of the scientists that I follow, all of the doctors, everyone who's trying to build awareness around this and find alternatives or at least ways to mitigate it. I think everyone is aware of that because the science is so irrefutable. But a couple of days ago, um, Elon Musk answered a question from someone about 5G and they were saying, you know, Elon, do you have any, um, you know, do you have any concerns about the health uh, ramifications of 5G technology? Because, of course, he's a huge proponent and wants to put satellites in space, beaming the whole planet with 5G. And he's like, no, there's zero health concerns. My only concern is just the the grab, the land grab by Samsung or, you know, something that was just more related to uh, the economy and industry, right? Yeah. Not health. And then I'm like, oh, my God, okay, this guy is clearly very intelligent. There's tens of thousands of research papers in existence readily available that show unequivocally that radiation hurts you, right? I mean, to the degree, I guess, is debatable. But I mean, if anyone just Googles cancer clusters plus school, even censored Google will still show you results of schools all over the world where there's a cell tower and, you know, exorbitant a number of kids has come down with brain cancer in that area and nowhere else. I mean, yeah. it's just... Messes up cows' production of milk, too, is an obvious one. Yeah. So... And scientifically, you know, essentially one of the main things that it does is um, it shuts down the mechanism in your cell that closes it off to calcium. And so your cell gets flooded with calcium. And when you have an imbalance of calcium and magnesium and the other minerals, you get sick. You know, it's just, it's just not natural. But anyway, the Elon tweet. And I was like, oh, let me check the thread and see what people are saying. Because surely people are like, F you, dude. Because, <laughs> you know, like, oh, yeah. So my, 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 uh, my thought on this was like, he's too intelligent to not know that. So he must be evil. 
you know, and I, I even, I, I never get in Twitter wars with people. And I've actually tweeted that to him. I was like, God, this is crazy. Cause I, I know you're so intelligent that you have to understand the effect of radiation on our biology. So that leaves me to think that you must be evil, you know? And then I deleted the tweaks. <laughs> but then I went in and looked at the thread and there's all these people like, oh, you get these idiots, these hippies, you get more radiation from the sun and people giving all this whack data that makes no sense. I mean, it's so simplistic and just like easily refutable, even by someone like me. Um, that I was like, oh my God, there's a sea of people that just want faster movies and they don't give a fuck about their cell tower going in their kid's school. Yep. Or like where they do it in LA is they put a lot of them on top of hospitals. So the person in the penthouse suite who's paying, you know, five grand a day to be in their post-surgery or whatever for cancer. Yeah. is like living right under cancer causing levels of radiation. And anecdotally, and this is all I'll say on it, um, how I know that it's harmful to you is in my last apartment where you've visited and we recorded uh, unknowingly for three years, I was living under two massive cell towers that are right across the street, about a hundred yards from my bedroom, pointed right at my bedroom. They're on the fourth floor. I'm on the second floor. So, you know, given the, the height distance, maybe a little more than a hundred yards, but basically like two buildings away from me. And I had no idea they were there. And while I was living there, I had just horrendous health problems. I was sick all the time. I had colds. I had flus. Like, I don't get colds and flus, dude. I'm like clean living guy. Uh, then I started to get excruciating headaches almost every morning. I started to get this insane brain fog where I could barely function. I mean, emails were like just difficult. Uh, it was hard to drive at times. I had so much vertigo. My eyes went bad. I had to start wearing glasses. Things got all blurry. I'm going, I'm doing every kind of modality and healing known to man. I'm doing the ozone IVs. I'm getting all my blood work done. Like I'm trying to find what the fuck is wrong with me. I never could figure it out. I installed this thing called a Blue Shield Cube, which is the scalar wave technology that essentially, it's a little on the quantum woo-woo side, but essentially what it does is it radiates a harmonious field of energy within your living space that your body attunes to and renders you, I wouldn't say impervious completely, but much less under the effect of EMF. Because your body's going to tune into whatever frequencies are in the environment. So if you overpower the EMF with something else, your body goes, oh, dang, this feels a lot better. And you kind of lock into that. I'm oversimplifying it. I did an interview with the inventor and it's an hour and a half of a deeper scientific explanation. But anyway, I improved this. I put this thing in and my sleep. Oh, and that's the other thing. My sleep just sucked. I couldn't fucking sleep. And I couldn't figure it out. And I thought, well, I'm going to install this thing. This is before I knew about the cell towers. I'm going to put this thing in here just because I know I have a lot of ambient radiation in the environment just for being in the middle of the city, right? I put that in and I started to sleep better. Some of my symptoms subsided considerably, but I didn't really make the connection that it was that thing. It's just in hindsight, looking back, I realized, oh, actually the last six months I lived there, I got a lot better. And then I connected it to the fact that I installed this thing in my apartment. So there could have been some placebo there. Cause what is the thing called again? Blue Shield Cube, B-L-U, Shield, S-H-I-E-L-D. They're out of New Zealand. Cool. Uh, they make a little pocket EMF thing. It uses scalar waves. Any like new age hippie will know what scalar waves are. Right. <laughs> um, anyway, moral of the story is this. I'm super sick. I don't know what's causing it. One day after I interviewed Jack Cruz, actually, I think it was at our, uh, when we did the round table with Jack Cruz. People will listen to him. And he was, um, you know, he's like, Luke, you got to get out of the city. And I'm like, I I can't do that right now. I'm, you know, I'm locked in. It's like the mafia, you know, no matter how hard I try to get out, they keep pulling me back in, you know, whatever that movie was, Goodfellas or something. Um, 
And so I go, okay, Jack, I can't do that. Uh, and I'm shielding the EMF in my place. I'm doing everything I can. He said, well, if you're going to live here, Luke, here's what you got to do, man. You got to watch the sunrise and the sunset every day to at least get your dopamine, your neurotransmitters, mm. your cortisol, all that shit and check your melatonin cycles. Like if your circadian rhythm is intact, at least you have that, which is like the core of your health, according to his methodology. Cool. So I had been watching the sunrises because right where I lived on that street in um, Miracle Mile, I had a direct line of sight to the the um, to the sunrise that was unimpeded by mountains or anything. Like I could get it right when it came up between six and seven a.m. depending on the time of the year. So I've been doing that, but I couldn't see the sunset from where I was. So after the Jack interview, I got excited with a renewed commitment to catch the sunrise and the sunset. I go into this building across me across from me that's a um, ironically enough, there's a bunch of uh, health practitioners in this building from Pilates to chiropractic, to all kinds of stuff. It's like a health building, which is just insane. Actually the guys, the next health, that company, yep. they just moved into the building when I moved out. I was like, guys, I hate to be the one to tell you, but you just moved into a cell tower building and they're like, whatever. Um, but anyway, so Jack inspired me one day. It's almost sunset. I'm like, ah, I'm going to sneak into that building I mean, not sneak in, but I didn't have any other business being there. I went into the stairwell and I worked my way up to the roof on the fourth floor. And right when I got to the top of the stairs, I see all these Verizon warning radiation signs. I'm like, you gotta be fucking kidding me. Is this what I think it is? I'm all excited to watch the sunset and like get healthy. I open the door and there's these radiation signs everywhere. And there's two massive like multi-tower cell units behind this faux wall, which is why I didn't know they were there for three years, or I would have moved the first day and broken my lease. They were so close, you know? Mm. So I walk out there, I go, holy fuck, this is what's been wrong with me. I've been getting radiated every night, all, well, anytime I'm in my apartment, but especially in the bedroom, because they were closest to that, and there were no other walls interfering beside their little fake wall and the thin-ass wall of my 1920s Spanish building, you know? So I immediately found a place in the Hollywood Hills, and that's where I live now. And um, the minute I moved, my symptoms just totally took a nosedive, and wow. I'm, I'm good to go. Yeah, so wow. it's like, interesting. that's not nocebo, because I didn't know they were there. It wasn't like, I'm like, oh, I'm living under these cell towers and making yeah, myself right, get right, headaches, right. making my eyes go bad, like causing all these health problems. I had no fucking idea that they were there. And I'm someone that's knowledgeable about this stuff, as I said, so I would never live somewhere that close to a cell tower. So anecdotally, like that's my experience. Although I do know people that are less sensitive than me for whatever reason, could be limbic system trauma, you know, the body's lived in a fight or flight response since I was a little kid through different things that I went through. And so uh, I might just be a bit more susceptible than some people. Case in point, I sent finally after I moved about six months, I didn't want to be that guy. I just couldn't live with myself, so I composed a really non-tinfoil hat, non-psycho email that was relatively neutral for the former um, tenants that I had lived next to. It was a fourplex, so there's three couples that lived in there. And I sent them an email with some links and some photos of the cell tower across from their apartment. And I said, hey, not to interfere with your life or put any negative energy into your subconscious or anything like that, but I just I couldn't live with myself if I didn't leave this burning building and tell you guys it's on fire, basically. And none of them answered <laughs> my yeah, email. They're just like, what a kook. I feel fine. So, Because yeah. I think I said, like, if you're experiencing headaches, insomnia, da-da-da, it could be affecting you in the ways that it affected me. One of the tenants, the girl that moved into my former apartment, emailed me back. She's like, yeah, I've heard about this EMF stuff, but I really don't care. Like, I need to live in the city. You know? yep. She was like, I'm not worried about it. It's like, cool. 
So then there's that, but there's the Bruce Lipton, Joe Dispenza side of it, which is mind over matter, consciousness over matter. Yep. And you can transmute exterior threats to your system through the power of your belief and overpowering those EMFs. And this sounds crazy, using your mind and actually generating your own magnetic field within you energetically through meditations and breath works and just intention of like, I'm safe. There is a God. I'm going to be okay. It's not making me sick. So if you live under a cell tower and every moment you're thinking, I'm getting cancer, I'm getting cancer, I'm getting cancer, you're getting fucking cancer. Right. Probably, you know? So, well, so I wonder with that, so a big part of what I wanted to get into with you, which you have an immense amount of experience with is addiction. And I, first, something like pops up as you're talking about this stuff, I feel like if you're living in a place where you do feel chronically drained, um, that, that body, that person would probably be more susceptible to something that temporarily takes you out of that, that reality. And, uh, you know, so then I think if from, that's like the rat park, the, the rats and they did an experiment in Vancouver where they gave the rats like rat girlfriends and rat wheels and rat ponds and the whole thing. Like they don't care about cocaine. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but then yeah. the rats that are like in this <laughs> totally. cubicle environment totally. where it's just white walls and blue light and probably a bunch of radiation, but that's, you know, not, not involved in the research, obviously. Um, those rats really love some cocaine. You know, and they'll avoid food for the sake of just doing more cocaine, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think it's an interesting yeah. thing of like what addiction yeah. is in the first place and the environmental uh, influence of addiction, um, but then also like your, your upbringing. And, and I just wonder for you how your perspective of addiction has evolved over the years. Cause, well, and, then, and then your history with it, yeah. and just touching on it a little bit. It I know has, we talked about it previously, but. It has evolved a lot, man. And it's like, uh, I mean, how do I even start? First, I think from my point of view as someone who's been free of active addiction for maybe 23 years, the 15th of this month in February, it's a day that I hold so dear to my heart. Um, Having had some time away from that life of bondage, which anyone that's been addicted to something, you know, like alcohol or crack or heroin and the things that I was addicted to um, knows that once that gets lifted from you through... Uh, in my observation and in my own experience, it got lifted through a deep surrender mm. that I couldn't fix it. And this is the premise of the first step in the 12 steps is that I'm powerless over this thing and I my life is unmanageable. In other words, like I can't work my life. I suck at being the manager of the business known as my life. Like everything <laughs> I do just turns to shit. I have like the opposite of a Midas touch. <laughs> <laughs> and so um have the fecal touch you know <laughs> yeah. oh another shit storm um so through that surrender uh comes humility of an open heartedness and a broken heartedness and an open mindedness that allows a power greater than oneself to enter in and do for you what you can't do for yourself and this is the premise of really the whole 12 steps which to me is i mean just throughout at least recorded history is the most has had the most profound impact on addiction than anything ever. Kind of the premise of Christianity as well. Yeah. So, so as someone who's been free of it for a long time, looking free of it in the sense that I am wise enough now to know that there's parameters that I can't cross. Like I don't drink alcohol. I don't do Coke. I don't do speed. I don't smoke weed. There's just things that are just off limits for me. And we can get into a conversation about clinical psychedelic use and plant medicines and stuff, which are, categorically different in their intention, their effect and outcome 
it's kind of a prelude to going off on that, but back to the roots of addiction, like the way I see it now is so simple. It is, it's a response to trauma, you know, and in that trauma is separation, which goes back to your little rat house, you know? Yep. Uh, and so for me, and this became so clear last year when I did a series of ayahuasca ceremonies, the first four that I ever did in my life. Now I'm up to eight. Um, I had known, you know, I experienced sexual abuse, verbal abuse, violence, abandonment, neglect. I did not have a great childhood, you know, and God bless my parents. I don't blame them. And I'm always kind of like, I tiptoe around that sometimes because I'm speaking publicly. My parents watch some of these things, you know, yeah. and they're like, really, dude, you know, you're going to out me like that. My parents did the best they could, but let's just say environmentally, and I wasn't sexually abused by my parents. Let's just get that out there. I would never want anyone to misconstrue that. Um, that would be a whole other level of trauma um, that I know many people have experienced, you know, the incest side of it. What I've seen about that experience and just a lot of the experiences in my childhood was the initial trauma, like for me being um, sexually abused when I was five or six, was so damaging psychologically and so disorienting disorienting what's the word for that disorienting um, disorienting thank you yeah and um just so impossible to contextualize that the trauma the initial trauma is just sort of like this tipping point that then sets into motion this self-traumatizing way of thinking feeling relating acting because there's nowhere to take that so for example had I experienced that trauma and had the support, the wherewithal, therapy, communication with my parents, I didn't tell anyone that happened until I was 14 years old after I was already you know, going to jail and all kinds of crazy shit going on and got into all sorts of heavy drugs and everything. By the time I was 14, um, my life was already just completely destroyed by addiction at that point. But the trauma really came from having to hold that reality and not knowing what to do with it. And then the shame that compounded as a result of that experience of thinking like, I mean, I remember being a little kid and going like, does this mean I'm gay? And back then being gay was not cool. You know, there weren't like yeah. trans people coming to your kindergarten and shit. You know what I mean? Like now, which is a whole other topic. I don't know that I'm necessarily on board with, but um, the sexualization socially of children was not above board then at all. And so I was just like, oh shit, I'm ashamed of this. This is really bad. I know this isn't right. And since I had nothing to do with that, then came, you know, like arson and pornography and stealing and lying and violence and all sorts of things that were my coping mechanisms of just being a confused kid. When I discovered drugs, which for me was, <clears throat> the first one was weed, just because I lived in Northern California. It was the 70s. Everyone grew weed. All of the hippies from the hate had sort of, when the crash and burn of 69 happened, the summer of love, they all kind of like went out into the burbs and into the country. And a lot of them went to like Sonoma County, Mendocino, Humboldt, grew weed, Hell's Angels, all this kind of stuff. So that was the first drug I discovered, along with rock and roll, really, you know? Like, I mean, that was my first spiritual experience for sure. It was like smoking weed and listening to Jimi Hendrix, you know, it was yeah. just like, oh, I'm fucking home. Finally, I feel at home. And what it was, was a facsimile of spirituality. Yep. And all those years later, when I ended up getting sober, and to this day, what keeps me sober and keeps me sane is my connection to God. And so what was missing was... How do you define God? I define God as the thing that makes your toenails grow. 
you know, that turns an acorn into an oak tree, the thing that um, organizes the cosmos and nature and the thing that gives us the impulse to love and be loved, that gives us compassion. It's like an invisible friend. <laughs> On the way over here, I was praying, you know, I just was just thanking whatever that thing is that created me for my life. I don't know what it is or if it can even be defined. I just know that it's like, I didn't make my soul appear in this universe and I didn't make my soul embody this spacesuit meat suit. Something's done that to me and for me yeah. with or without my consent. And you're along for the ride. Yeah. Something that powerful and omniscient and intelligent and complex and infinitely loving is really beyond description so it's like it's almost futile to try to explain what a definition is but that's the easiest way for me to say it is just it's an energy field that's around and when i stay close to it and i humble myself before it and i avail myself to it and i um, acknowledge my limitations and my frailty and faults and weaknesses um, I'm uplifted and given strength and given motivation, given insight, given wisdom, clarity that I wouldn't be able to achieve on my own, you know? And so back to the roots of it, it's that early trauma, which for me was pretty acute. And trust me, I've met many people that have had much, you know, objectively worse childhoods where they're raped for 10 years and just, you know, child trafficked and crazy ass shit. Their parents die. They're in an orphanage. I mean, it's like... I think pain and trauma is relative. So each one of us experiences our trauma as painful as the next person experiences theirs. Yeah. Although some from the outside would appear to be more horrific and devastating than others. And I'm sure some are, and that's where serial killers and people that become extremely deranged come from is usually like really hardcore acute trauma. Do you think it's the perception of the experience or the experience itself? Probably both. I mean, listen, if... <clears throat> If like, if my um, perpetrator had just like watched a porno movie with me or something, that would be child abuse. That would be sexual abuse, right? Or maybe like put their hand on my leg. That could be trauma that could lead to addiction. But, you know, I'm not going to go into graphic detail because it's not necessary of what happened to me, but it was beyond that, but not as bad as you can imagine. Um but had I been, as I said, like repeatedly raped for a number of years, like I probably wouldn't be sitting here because I would be psychotic and certainly, you know, much more likely to have ended up in the prison system or a mental institution or something like that. Mm. So the fact that mine was what it was is some indication of why I was able to eventually heal those things and overcome them relatively easier, perhaps, than someone that had been abused to a greater degree. And also, I know a lot of addicts in recovery that. We're just the middle kid that got ignored and that was their trauma or their parents never hugged them. I have friends, their parents, their whole childhood never told them they loved them. I mean, I can't imagine that. That's almost worse, <laughs> you know, but there is no worse. It's, it's Bob Marley. Every man's burden is the heaviest. You know, it's like, what was your worst? Seems like nothing to me. And you look at mine, you're like, oh my God, you know, it's just, it doesn't matter. The point is the human ape animal is meant to be held. 
It's meant to be nurtured. It's meant to be loved. It's meant to have many people in a tight-knit community love it and exchange care for it. And it's not meant to be fondled with sexually. It's just that's not how we're wired to evolve in a healthy way. And when when forces come in that interfere with that natural maturity and growing and the coming of age ceremonies that would have been inherent in our ancestry and all those things are skipped and missed and you have divorced parents and everything's fragmented and you're put into a factory worker mold school system that takes into that takes no account of your learning style and the type of personality you have and all of that um, many of us are left with like, wow, this world is really painful and I can't stand to be in my skin. And I take a couple of bong hits and put on Black Sabbath. I'm taken away to another universe. Yeah. And we think as addicts that we're getting high, like our, our consciousness is being elevated because now we feel free, we feel loose, we're happy. We can forget about the molesters. We can forget about the abusers. We can get forget about our failures and our insecurities and our inhibitions, and we feel like, oh man, I'm high, I'm free, like, ah, oh, I just want to stay like this. And so it begins the cycle of trying to chase that feeling. But what's really happening, in my estimation, is not that drugs make you high, it's that drugs mask the lower emotions of shame, fear, guilt, envy, jealousy, rage, hate, resentment, right? Self-loathing. They mask those feelings that make it impossible to live in your skin, but they only mask them for a certain period of time. So it's like when those feelings are, are, um, are, how do I say it? Like when those feelings are nullified by taking drugs, then when the drugs wear off, you're right back at that low level of consciousness that you were. In other words, they, they're a facsimile of raising your consciousness. When you get sober and you start to do recovery work and therapy, and then even later on in one's journey, perhaps even plant medicines and things like that, then and meditation and all the spiritual practices, kundalini yoga, breath work, whatever one's you know method it is, they all like all trails lead to the top of the mountain. So I don't think there's like one over the other. But when you fundamentally orient yourself to a spiritual way of life and inner healing you're not getting high. What's happening is you're actually, or you're not masking the shadow side of yourself and all those lower emotions and those lower states of being. What happens is you are actually elevating your consciousness. And when you elevate your consciousness, the need to numb your pain goes away because the pain goes away because you're raising your consciousness, you know? Mm. And so that's kind of my view of addiction now is that we've all experienced some degree of trauma it's just that some of the trauma is more acute than others. I mean, I know people that were the elder child and were the best at sports and the best at academics, and they had unreasonable expectations placed on them by their parents to be the hero kid, the golden child, and they could never measure up. And they became drug addicts, and they were never abused at all. Like, their parents were just like, you have to be the best. Yeah. Additionally, this is, this is where it gets weird to me. This one I don't understand, but it just seems to be the case that... There are certain people, and it could have something to do with um, genetics and just inherited addictive patterns, but there seem to be some people that are susceptible to becoming addicted to substances and some people that aren't. The people that are 
like me, the first drink I had, the first <laughs> Coke I had as, you know, nine, 10 years old, whatever it was. I mean, it was so euphoric. All my problems completely disappeared. I was in this enchanted forest of bliss and love. And I just felt free of all of that pain and shame and everything that comes with it. But I know other people who don't get that sense of relief for their trauma by doing drugs. So they get into shopping or codependency or working out profusely. They have some other sort of compulsive addictive behavior because they don't have that gene that makes you take a drink and go, yeah, give me another one. Give me another one. Give me another one. Give me another one. And that's why I don't drink. I don't even know if I could drink. It's possible. Who knows? I might be able to have a beer and not have 10 more that night and end up in downtown LA doing heroin. Yep. But I'm not taking that fucking chance because for a good 15 years of my life, anytime I just dipped my toe in the pool with certain substances, I'm in the pool. And I don't know when I'm coming out. I literally would end up in different cities and states. I had no idea how I got there. I'm with people that are really nasty people yeah. that I would never in my waking state choose as friends. You know, in recovery, we call them lower companions. And that eventually through the moral degradation that's inherent to addiction, you become one of those lower companions for other people. Like their parents are like, don't hang out with the Luke guy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You become one of them to some degree or another. And then you have that moment of realization, probably years later, you're like, oh shit, I'm a lower companion. Yeah. And I had no idea. Dude, when I got sober, <laughs> I had to make amends. I thought I was Luke. Yeah, Good yeah. times Luke. Well, dude, I was so deluded. It, see, because this is where the denial comes in. I was so, I was so deluded that... Uh, you know, when I like to like kind of sound tough that I was a heroin addict and stuff, because there's still some mystique of coolness, I think, yeah, of Keith rock, Richards, you know? and stuff, yeah. um, but I never used needles, you know, um, and that was really, I mean, looking back, the grace, now I use needles all the time. I shoot peptides up, you know, like, yep. but I knew if I started to shoot up that I was going to fucking die because the way I used was so gnarly, you know, I mean, I just. It was just like a ravenous animal. Once I took something, I could not stop. Um, but one of the ways like denial played into my addiction is I smoked heroin, right? You could get this like Mexican tar heroin downtown LA. I'm, I'm sure there's plenty there still, yep. probably more. because our borders have become more porous since the 90s. Uh, but I would do that. And to me, I was like, no, this is like a stoner kind of hippie thing. I was into the Grateful Dead. I smoked weed. I sold weed. And smoking heroin was kind of like smoking opium. You know, it's just like a chill vibe <laughs> with a lot of throwing up yeah. and a lot of dope sickness and running downtown with $8 trying to find someone at 2 a.m. because you're getting sick, you know. But there were all these sort of defense mechanisms I had to justify it. But there, there's my type of person who's born that way. But I have a lot of friends who experience a lot of trauma. And drinking doesn't make their trauma feel better. They're like, oh, I have a headache. I'm dizzy. Like, I don't like that medicine, but I'm going to like be a workaholic and work 16 hours a day until I die of a fucking heart attack at 35. You know, yeah. like that's their coping mechanism. That's where I think there's a lot more similarities between everybody than there are differences, including going back to like the, the CEO of whoever filmed the you know blank company. Um that perhaps their addiction is power or money yeah. or notoriety or any of those things. And, but those are socially acceptable addictions compared to the one where it's like, you're, you know, what you're describing, that's like very socially unacceptable. Yeah. And it is, so in a sense, I question sometimes if um, some of the, the ones that are more taboo to fall into that trap is almost in a sense, like 
a better trap to get into. Oh my God. Yeah. You know, cause the, the, all of culture is going to be like, dude, you need help. <laughs> yeah. We're here for you. Yeah. Whereas the person that hates themselves, but they keep on raking it in, you know, it's like culture just keeps like, dude, wow, you're killing it. You're killing it, man. Wow. Look at you. Look at you. It's a totally different setup. Yeah. You're so right. I, I feel, and that's, you know, when I got choked up earlier, just when I thank God for my life, I'm not thanking God just for the life that I have now where I'm, I mean, like the career I have and the relationships and my girlfriend and just, I am so blessed as just a general human being, not even taking into consideration my past and how horribly things were going for me and would have continued to go had it not been for this divine intervention I experienced in 1997. Uh, I'm thankful for, and this might sound fucking crazy to anyone who's been abused, but I'm thankful for the abuse experience. I'm yeah. thankful for my parents' having a learning curve in parenting. I'm grateful for other perpetrators and abusers in my life. I'm grateful for all of the shitty ass decisions I made that really wrecked my life and so many situations in which I put myself in harm's way. And well, I'm not grateful for harming other people, but the lessons that have come from my acknowledgement of the people I've harmed along the way, because I truly believe that without those very potent incentives, I would probably not be as devoted to my spiritual life, my evolution, yep. and the growth of my consciousness as I am. For me, the beginning of the journey was so life or death. It was like, get God or you're going to fucking die, mm. period. That was the only way out. And when I seized that moment and understood that on a fundamental level, it worked. It worked. I was set free. Mm. I checked myself into a treatment center. I was 26 years old. The first day I was in there, I woke up. When I wake up, I came to, I was hammered, of course, when I went in there. I was like pounding beers in the parking lot of the rehab. And they're telling my mom took me there, God bless her. And uh, they were like, we're not letting him in unless you like, you need to get the fuck up here. Like we were down in the parking lot and it was up in this building. It's called Azure Acres. It's in Sebastopol, which is where I first started doing drugs, ironically. Um, but I was wasted when I got in there. And then I woke up the next morning or came to just so sick and already in withdrawal and hung over and everything. And and I remember going to the nurses and I'm like, you guys, I'm not doing well. Like, you got any Dilaudid or something, you know? And they were like, oh, no, you're you're actually fine. We took your vitals. You're okay. Uh, you just, you have to pray to God. Wow. I was like, really? Valium? Like, something, guys? Come on, help me out here. I mean, I'm like, have the shakes. I'm just freaking out. And it was, they're like, nope, um, we're going to teach you the 12 steps for $10,000, but you can learn for a dollar uh, per meeting. Um, but uh you know, I mean, I needed that first 30 days. That I don't know if I would have made it like that because I needed that buffer and that sense of accomplishment, you know, where I could walk out and be like, I'm not fucking this up. I've been sober for a month, dude. Yeah. Like I'm in now. But I made a, a resolute decision that morning that I was going to be sober the rest of my life. And I just did not want to suffer anymore. And my prayer to God that I totally didn't understand or believe in at all, which really speaks to the power of humility and spiritual inquiry and just soul level desperation i prayed to god like my hands like this at the foot of the bed i think from watching little house on the prairie or something i don't even know where i learned this shit so i never went to church or anything and i was just my prayer was just like god remove this obsession to drink and use i think that's the words they gave me in that kind of paradigm of recovery something to that effect just like set me free man i can't live like this i want to be sober and aaron from that moment was 23 years ago to the day till this moment i have never ever remotely had the idea of maybe i should drink or do some coke or smoke some weed or that i can get away with it i'm fine now it's been 10 years 20 years 
I've never had a craving, nothing. It's just like, poof, you're free. There's no explanation for that because I'd been trying to do that myself for 10 years. I knew I was wrecking my life. You know, I'd have record deals and I would fuck them up because I couldn't be at the meetings because I was smoking crack all night. I mean, I was just a train wreck. I wonder with that, is do you have a sense of why a person will veer into sabotage and veer into kind of like recapitulating trauma? My sense is perhaps it, the trauma wants to work its way out. And by you putting yourself into those scenarios again, it, it opens the wound for a moment as an opportunity for it to like pour uh, but maybe, I don't know. I just wonder if like, what, what is the, yeah, it's Makes just a sense. spitballing. I think for me, when you're in active addiction, it's, uh, it's a self-perpetuating failure and trauma loop. So let me just take you back a, a day in my life. So say I'm, I'm 22 years old last night. I'm up, you know, till 9am smoking crack and heroin wandering the streets, hanging out with homeless people in abandoned buildings, prostitutes, the whole shit, you know, mm-hmm. like shopping cart. Those are my homies <laughs> wow. behind the gas station on Hollywood and Highland. And I'm not trying to sound badass. I mean, it's fucking pathetic. And I knew it was. So the next day I come to and I'm like, oh my God, I'm such a loser. I fucking, I smoke crack. Like crack is not cool. At least if you smoke weed, you're like, yeah, I'm a stoner, man. It's cool. There's like an identity to that. That's in some circles, socially acceptable. There's no social circle above board. That's like, you smoke crack. Awesome. Yeah. So all of that shame and all those feelings I've been suppressing from, you know, 10 p.m. till 9 a.m. on that run now are flooding me. And now I've got not only the original trauma and the pain and just the wrecked life and the self-awareness that I'm a total failure at everything. But now I have like the hangover and all the shame of knowing what a loser I am. So the only way to get rid of that is to go do it again. It's fucked. That's why I have so much compassion for people that are in active addiction and also, you know, a, somewhat of a, con- a contempt for people that judge those people as morally weak or just bad people or lazy or stupid. It's like you literally do not have a choice when yeah. you're addicted. I just, you just don't. I'm sorry. You, you're compelled by such a strong drive. It's like the, it's like the drive to live. It's like the self-preservation because the pain that you experience psychologically and emotionally and the spiritual disconnect and the social disconnect and all of the betrayal and lack of intimacy and trust and human connection and love is so profoundly damaging that when you're in that cycle, the only way to alleviate the pain is to just keep going and just watch the wheels fall off. Yeah. And I don't know what the stats are, but from my observation and understanding, a vast percentage of people that are in that cycle end up dead or in jail, or if they're lucky, in some sort of mental institution. And I would venture to say most of the people we see out on the streets that are living on the streets are those people that are in that cycle. And didn't have a mom to call like I did, where I could be like, oh, white flag, I'm done. Like, help get me in a rehab. She lent me the 10 grand to go there. God bless my fucking mom. As much as I drive around Hollywood looking at the encampments and shit and go like, really? Like, local government? Can you guys get your shit together? What's wrong with you fucking Democrats? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you don't see that shit in, like, red states, you know? You don't go to Salt Lake City and see that shit, you know? Or, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> it's a whole other conversation. But, um, <laughs> you know, as much as it's like, God, I feel like such a dick. But if I'm honest, I'm just like, ew, I don't want to look at that. But then yeah. a moment later, I see some guy who's 50 years old with dreadlocks and a sunburn you know, some like old 
a white dude like me that just didn't have the help that I had and the grace that I had. um, That's fucking me. It was just the change of one decision in my life of making that one phone call. That's me. And that's why when I, when I pray or I, I go into ceremony or I meditate, you know, on a good day when I, when I can keep this close to my heart and my awareness is that I'm so grateful for the whole experience because without those experiences, albeit painful and ones, if I had a choice, yeah, maybe, you know, I wouldn't choose to be molested. You know what I'm saying? Like who fucking wants that? But whoever I am today, the man that I am today at 49 years old, 23 years sober, it's like, a lot of the time, I actually really like myself, and people also seem to like me and the impact that I have on their life. And I think the impact that I'm able to have and the things I like about myself are my deep level of empathy and compassion and love for other people. Because I just, when you've been in that sort of abject pain for that long, it's really hard to hate other people and to not see their pain. Even like I have right now, I have this really kind of obsessed online troll who just has made it his mission to just post stuff about me and things like that you know oh, good for you which is flattering it means yeah, i awesome. guess i'm doing something right yeah, that's that people great. are paying attention people listening i could use a troll but there'd be um you know there would have been a time in my life you'd be like fuck that guy i'm gonna get revenge and get all like wrapped up into that energy field of like oh i'll show you and it's just i just man i think oh god i just i see the pain in someone that feels the need to like someone who's in that much emotional pain and abject loneliness and whatever they're going through that they're motivated to spend their time and energy to attempt to hurt other people. So it's like, rather than me condemning that person, I really feel, I mean, it's annoying a little bit, you know, because people like someone texts me today, oh, hey, I saw this guy. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know. It's a little bit, you know, mildly irritating, but really underneath that, if I stop and just get present, it's like, oh, I know that pain. And I just wish I could hug that guy and just be like, dude, I love you. It's okay. You're safe. You know, it's like, yeah, this isn't going to help. <laughs> I know things that will help and this ain't it, you know? I wonder... And I don't know if I could arrive, I could have arrived at that level of understanding and just unconditional love for fellow man. I mean, I mean the worst of them because as we were saying earlier, each human being, as depraved as their behavior is, and I'm talking about the worst in history, they are literally doing what they think is right at every given moment. Yeah, that's my belief. Like, and I'm not going to name names because people could be triggered, but just think of the, you know, most abhorrent evil people in history and there's even a lot of them in existence right now you know that are attempting to you know through power plays you know win elections and things like that and um uh even those people that on a surface level i'm like fuck them i hate them it's like no they're just they're acting out their trauma they're acting out their patterns because this is what happens when you experience trauma you build neural pathways based on survival mechanisms you know and then those become ingrained and deeply embedded. And then throughout your life, you're now, you have a way of, uh, your felt and sensed experience of life is shaped by those, those experiences for which you did not have support and help to heal them in the moment. And then those become the neural pathways or the thought patterns, the emotional states that get ingrained into who you are. And those become your character. And your character becomes someone who's vindictive, who's power hungry, who's selfish, self-centered, who is a pathological liar, who steals, who harms other people intentionally. Evil people inherently are all good. It's a reaction to yeah, their environment, absolutely. you know? And so I don't condone that. And I think certain people, I mean, honestly, I, I won't say I support the death penalty, but 
I wouldn't say in all cases I'm entirely opposed to it. Well, sometimes there's a seems like there's. I'm probably I'm probably opposed to it. Actually, let me just on the record. I don't think killing someone because they killed someone is. But I feel like killing them, and I well, feel like they should be punished or just removed from their their gift of life should be revoked because they've been their crimes are so heinous. But I think in a more realistic sense that every human soul is poss- is is deserving of and is able to have redemption because the power of God is greater than the power of evil. Yeah. Now, we don't have the systems in place, by and large, to facilitate that transformation and that healing to turn a you know pathological pedophile into you know, a trustworthy priest. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but at the core level, there is a sense of forgiveness for them, no matter how evil their deeds have been, because I know they're just suffering and their suffering is being expressed in those ways. I think as far as like the death penalty, which I obviously don't have a strong opinion either, either way, because I don't think I understand it enough, but I feel like, you know, going, harking back to the idea that the earth is all, you know, we're all one interacting organism in this thing. And so coming from like an allopathic model of medicine compared to like more of like a holistic naturopathic approach, it's like, at what point do we cut the tumor out? And what point do we go more intrinsically and work with activating the, the, the body's healing mechanisms from within. And so I think that that's a similar analogy with like the death penalty you know, at what point do we cut this aberrant mutation of a cell that's that's destroying the organism as a whole or a perception of that? You know, at what point do we decide to literally take a scalpel and chop it off and let it die in a plate? And at what point do we say, okay, maybe there's something deeper that's creating that aberrant pattern and we can look at that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes maybe we don't have yeah. time to look deeper and we need to do, you know, maybe a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like that's like a, a kind of a fair analogy. Yeah, I, I, I think I would... As I as I sit with that, you know, my previous comment, I I don't think that not like what I think fucking matters anyway in the great scheme of things. But just on record, since we're recording these things, you know, Luke thinks he's spiritual and he wants to kill bad people. You know, um, yeah. so I I don't think that's a solution. I mean, here here here's what I think. Okay, I think that <laughs> in my own experience, had I not had the karmic freedom to be a thief, to be a liar, to be selfish, to hurt other people, to be a perpetrator that was once a victim. If I wasn't allowed, you know, just... In other words, if there wasn't an existence of darkness and evil on this planet, there would really be no point. In other words, like, why would I ever choose to elevate my consciousness if it was already there? It's sort of like having a world that's just completely bliss and there's no wars and there's no molesters. Everything's white or everything's gray. Yeah. Then it's like, well, why come to earth school? Because you're a PhD going back to kindergarten. Like, why would you do that? We all need the freedom and that scope of possibilities, you know, that open realm where we can be the most depraved evil person ever and work our way up even in one lifetime to an angelic being that only contributes love and light to the experience. So I'm, you know, that's why I'm not, I never get caught up in causes like save the world, like change the world. I don't think the world needs changing. The world's perfect just the way it is because it allows the full expression of the human soul to go from the lowest levels of animal consciousness to the highest levels of angelic God realization. And without that spectrum of possibilities and room to play, how are you going to grow? Like, what's the purpose of coming to earth? Yeah. And it seems to me, based on all of the different spiritual traditions and teachings that all sort of 
come from different cultures and times all over the planet throughout history that they all support this idea that we're in this earthly material experience to grow and evolve and we're given choices and every choice we make from flip like i had a choice just now someone got behind me and i was going super slow because i was looking for a parking place i would have annoyed me in that moment i didn't realize someone was behind me and they went just not a bad honk not like but they're just like boop about that long (laughs) my initial reaction was just slam on my brakes fuck you finger out the window because i was kind of annoyed trying to find parking i'm five minutes late you know sorry about that no, no, it's no, it's fine. It's, you told me where to park. It is lost. It's I have like fifty channels of communication. I don't remember where a message was. Um, but that little minute moment, it's like so what? You flip someone up, big deal. And yeah, big deal, whatever. But in that moment, I had one little micro choice to contribute positivity or negativity to the energy field to the collective, right? Yeah. And my higher self superseded my lower self animal that was like threaten me, fuck you. Um, if they had had a nicer car than me, I definitely would have flipped them off. <laughs> now, there was a time when I used to get really mad at people if, cause I was in a 95, a Nissan Maxima Burgundy. <laughs> it had a system though. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I was bumping. Yeah, it was bumping. Uh, <laughs> but I used to get so, my ego used to get so butthurt if like some little punk in a Mercedes whizzed by me and honked at me or passed me up. I would yeah. like chase him around town. I mean, I used to be insane. Start painting this whole story about him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, or he her. thinks he's better than me. Like all right. this egoic bullshit. Um, <laughs> But out throughout our lives, it's like you have that opportunity to demonstrate honesty and integrity. And as you start to evolve, you not only find it easier, or one, I should say, not you, I don't, I don't want to preach at people, but one finds it easier to take the higher road the more you do it. You build this inertia of like, wow, I really feel a lot better. It's almost like just a self-preservationist wisdom of like, I'm going to have a much better interview with Aaron if I don't get pissed off at someone right now who's just in a hurry but their kid might be in the hospital you know like you don't even know that person's story of why they're honking at you or maybe it was a polite tap and i interpret it as them going fuck you and so i'm gonna engage i have a a a a sense that um if you hate any being you essentially hate yourself you know it's because that that, that that being that you conceive to be out there uh, one, you know, say the, the troll example on the internet, you know, like they're, mm-hmm. they probably don't love themselves, whether they realize that or not. The mm-hmm. fact that they're investing energy and trying to tear somebody else down, um, it's like, come on. Um, but for the most part, when you start to harbor that sensation of distaste or hate or whatever it may be, um, the beings out there, they have no idea. You know, there might be some telepathic morphic resonance, you know, shoot, uh, Rupert Sheldrake stuff going on, or they, they actually can feel through the field, whatever. Um, but, you know, that stuff aside, you are essentially planting a, a, a dark seed of cancerous shadow inside of yourself. You know, so when you have that moment of like, oh, that car, you're literally filling yourself up with darkness. And that guy or girl out there, they're just walking their dog doing their thing. You know, so it's a, it's a very interesting thing, that, that idea of like to hate. I think we, we want to kind of pass responsibility and like, oh, this is about them. It's like nothing is about them. Yeah. It's all about you. Yeah, it is. Exactly. <laughs> like I'm a narcissistic millennial, so it's easy for me to say that. But, but I yeah. think in the end, for every one of us living inside of this dream, it's all about you. Well, that's, 
<laughs> that's that's what I mean when I say that the world is perfect just the way it is. It doesn't need to be changed because what, what I'm perceiving that needs to be changed in the world is solely based on my projection of what I think the world is and what it should be. So who am I to say that the world needs to be changed? What needs to be changed is my perception of the world and my own consciousness and taking responsibility for my own energetic field and the way that I think, the thoughts I have, the feelings I have about myself, about others, how I spend my time and energy, my actions, my my character, you know, the core of who I am. Yep. That's the only thing that I can do really to contribute to the collective. And the interesting thing about that is to your point, and you keep bringing up this connectivity and this oneness that's inherent throughout the universe really of all living and non-living things i mean it's all just a ball of energy right that creation is holding in place and creating a perceived uh perceived um uh, materialism to separation yeah. yeah so it's like a nothing needs to be changed except me and when i change the level of the sea gets higher and all ships are brought up as my little ship gets higher yeah and so from that point of view to attack the guy that honked at me, I'm literally honking at my own self. Yeah, I'm flipping my own self off because me and that entity are only separated by the perception that they're in that body and I'm in this body. Yep. But in reality, at the quantum level, it's all one energy field. We're on the same community. And again, everything really is connected. And that's where it gets really interesting because then every little drop of positive energy that one puts into the universe is instantaneously gifted unto oneself. Yep. You know, random acts of kindness. The reason they make us feel good is for giving that kindness to ourselves, for giving ourselves that gift. And likewise, I think many people look at karma as like, okay, so, uh, you know, I, I go to the bank and they give me a $20 too much and I walk out and I notice it. I'm like, ah, fuck Chase. And I keep it. And then I think, oh man, karma might get me, you know, down the road in five years, I might lose $20. No, I already lost the $20 the minute I had the awareness that I was acting out of integrity, right? Mm. I've already robbed myself of the most precious thing I have, which is my own integrity and my character. Mm. And I've already lost. It's not worth it. But from a lower animal nature state, as many of us live in, and I, of course, like everyone, sink down into that at times. Um, you don't view the world like that because you're caught in the limbic system and you're looking at your environment as friend or foe in that duality that you mentioned so that everything is a win-lose proposition and the name of the game is win-win-win-win-win at the expense of everyone else. And I think if you win, then I can't win. And that's yep. where competition comes from, right? So the idea of abundance and the idea of karma to me are all one and the same and they're instantaneous. So the second I hurt you or make a little snide, passive-aggressive comment, I've just hurt my own soul and stopped my own progress yeah. tenfold over whatever it does to you because you're still able to protect yourself based on your perception because you could look at me and be like, oh, you know, he didn't mean it. he's just in pain. He's just insecure around me because his ego is threatened. You could have that understanding and be absolved of that whole uh, loop of drama. But inside myself, now I'm paying the price of lowering my own consciousness and, and knocking myself down a few notches yep. to the animal state. So it's this game of acknowledging the animal body and our, our instinctive drives for survival and procreation and security and all the things that the creation gave us in order to facilitate the human experience in a material body, in a material world. But we also have this angelic higher self that we can start to get to know and operate from that supersedes and overrides more of the time those lower states. 
So, you know, the girl DMs you on Instagram and you're like, hmm, this would be some easy sex. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and, and then the higher self is like, you're looking at this person for your own gratification. Now. Yeah. And maybe they're looking at you that way. I'm not, you know, I'm not even putting, putting it that yeah. way. It's just like, is this an engagement of my time and energy that is going to bring me and that other person to a higher level? And that's not to say that like anything wrong with casual sex, as long as it's consenting and everyone's being cool, like go for it. I'm not um, a prude in that sense. It's just an example of, I think for me where like my lower self would be like, yeah, take what you want. Yeah. You know, get what you want. And that's that self-serving, self-seeking way of operating the world based on the lower nature and based on the instincts that leads to futility and unhappiness and separation and loneliness and eventually is going to manifest as some means by which to numb that experience, which brings us back into addiction. So there's still things within me that are operationally out of alignment with my core of who I am. And so for me, it's like getting the munchies late at night and like, uh, I just... I'm all alone in my house. It's like, I need yep. sugar. Or it's like, let me refresh Instagram one more time. Yeah, I really want a hug, but I'll go eat this. Yeah, I need, a couple, I need a couple more likes. Yeah, you know, I'll check the stats. Insights, 708 likes? Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> you know, 3,000 likes? Yes, they love me. I'm worthy, you know? And this is just real shit, you know? Yeah. And I think as we become more aware of those drives, then we're able to kind of... And that our, game is funny too, because it's all based off of your relative sense of your position in the social hierarchy. You know, that that person, if, you know, Kobe Bryant looked at his insights, he wouldn't give a fuck probably. Yeah. But, you know, we'd look at and see that and be like, oh my God, if you had only 50,000 likes, oh my God, I'm a failure. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, it's all relativity. It's all just a big fucking game. But yeah. the, the thing that's, that's interesting... Uh, saying that we are it is all about you you know it's all about the individual i think that's true in part um but then i think we conceive sickness as being like okay i'm like coughing out this pathogenic bacteria thing and like i came to the party and you're like oh dude you came to the party while you were sick like you you infected the party dude what are you doing like stay home <laughs> you know i think it's like we we that's easy for us to to see even though bacteria is you know invisible to the naked eye but the belief that perhaps that 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 darkness of that oh you know, F them and, you know, I hate you and this and that and I'll F the government and F the this and this and like that literally is this dark cloud that you bear within you that you've subconsciously or unconsciously probably chosen to keep for you because it serves you for some reason, <laughs> um, you know, because yeah. because of like, you know, the whole polls it's like okay if they're terrible it means i'm good yeah but my goodness is based off of their terribleness you know but what you are enjoying in fact if you have not checked up on your own internal emotional spiritual psychological hygiene is you're literally as you walk out into the street into the world you're like coughing out this this darkness you know, and we're always attuning to each other. Yeah. And then, so then that gets into, I'll, I'll wrap this up because, you know, we have both. No, this is good. This is good. You know, but, but we're always attuning to each other. So at the same time, you could say, well, the medicine is actually going back to the tribe and being in the communion with others because they have the, they've kind of have more momentum as a team. So they can, we're always attuning to each other. So they can kind of heal that within you because we always want to kind of find this rapport with each other. We want to connect with each other. You know, so if I'm a, a really dark, powerful person, then I could perhaps take up more momentum and kind of overpower other people with my darkness. But if I get in a room where, oh, wow, like 
I'm kind of, I'm overpowered by the energy that they have. They're all smiles and light and bright and all that stuff. They can turn me around and yeah. make me feel uplifted. Yeah. But that is the part where it is, okay, it is all about you, but at the same time, it also is all about us. And you taking responsibility for your own internal psychological, emotional hygiene is actually quite valuable for the tribe. And sometimes the tribe could heal you if you allow it to. This is an interesting uh, point. And <laughs> I, I, I resonate with it a lot. It reminds me of uh, when, well, in, in certain paths to, re to recovery from addiction, um, I think the ones that have, as I said, proven over time to be the most effective on a wholesale level, um, being like the, uh, the um, introduction of the 12 steps and Alcoholics Anonymous in 1935 in Akron, Ohio, when that happened, like the whole game changed on human behavior. That's where group therapy came from. I mean, it's like, it's so interwoven into our Western and not only Western now, but many, many other cultures in the world that it's just, it's ubiquitous. And we sort of take it for granted. They talk about it in movies and TV. It's not like a thing now to be an AA and be sitting outside the church smoking cigarettes or drinking coffee where, you know, when it first started out, it was very sort of underground and very anonymous and all of that. But one of the core principles of recovery is as you start to align yourself spiritually and start to apply spiritual truths or principles into your life, the culmination of that is once you bring your own energy level up to a healed enough state, then you set your life on a course of being of service yep. and you dedicate yourself. That's the 12th step for those that don't know is about, um, you know, serving others essentially. And what I've noticed um, over the years, especially in the early years when I felt like, you know, my own uh, life vest was on to the degree that I could help put it on some others and um, be of service in that way in recovery. I noticed that when I would attempt to help people that had a modicum of humility and willingness that even if they were completely dark energies and just overtaken by their lower nature, if they had that seed of willingness and humility, I could be around them and my energy field would uplift them to the point where they could then eventually stand on their own feet and then carry that light, you know, sort of like, you know, the, yeah. the caveman carries fire to the next tribe kind of thing. The trees do the same thing for the mycelial. Right, network. right, right. Nitrogen to one side or whatever. It's yeah. where we are trees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm trees that used to smoke trees. Yeah, right. So, uh, Still do smoke But trees. then I would notice with some people I would I would work with, it didn't work. And then... I would start being lowered to their energy field and I'd feel gross and sick from being around like a sick newcomer and, yeah. you know, a program or something. And I was like, what is this? And eventually, you know, over many years, I started to piece it together. It's like darkness can be outshone by light, but it has to give permission. Mm. In other words, like I can't walk into a room full of serial killers and just be like, oh, and everyone's going to stop serial killing yeah. it's like they all have to want to stop serial killing and then that resonant field that i'm now emanating because i've done some work and connected to my higher self is going to up level them but it's an interesting phenomenon of the non-physical world that you can only overpower darkness if that person is a willing participant yeah and so i stopped trying to help people that didn't have that key ingredient because i knew it wasn't going to work yeah. It's just, oh, I'm just, no, you can keep what you've got. In other words, you know, if someone had that shell of ego or, or wasn't teachable or wasn't able to access just a little bit of humility and open-mindedness and open-heartedness, then it's just like, wow, you're, you're too much work. And it's, it's, it's just really not going to work. 
And I also learned that from being on the receiving end of that when I was like newly sober, I was so, oh my God, dude, I was such a train wreck because now I had not only like the seed of all the original trauma and discontent, but I had also compounded all of that pain through self-abuse and horrible relationships and just, you know, the shopping cart people and all that. So I like added on, stacked on more shit onto my little pure inner child, true self and then taking my medicine away. It's like having a raging headache and you've been taking aspirin so long, the aspirin burns a hole in your stomach, so you quit taking the aspirin, but the headache is still there, you know, to put it in simple sure. terms. But when I would get around people who had done the work spiritually and gotten above that threshold of suffering into a life of service, I would get around them, sponsors and whatnot, and I could be having the most psychotic day ever in five minutes with someone who was on a higher level, they would... <laughs> bring me up to their level. And I'd just be like, going, what? You know, I remember this one guy I worked with for like 10 years. I would just call him on the phone and I'd call him and be like, his name was Larry. I said, Larry, she broke up with me. And he would, all he would have to do is just start laughing his ass off. Yeah. Or I got fired. <laughs> He'd just be sitting there. I could see him smoking his cigar, just laughing his ass off. And next thing you know, I'm fucking laughing my ass off yeah. about losing my job or losing the girl or whatever. You know, got my car towed, whatever drama that was like inherent to my newbie sober life. And that's from the other side of it on the receiving end, I started to see like, what the hell is this? What's going on? How can I be completely catapulted into a higher level of consciousness just by being in someone's presence? Yeah. And the reason why is because I was willing to be taken there because mm -hmm. I was humble. I was humbled by pain. And then over the years, that humility and the desire to expand and grow uh, comes now more from the joy of that growing and the realizations and revelations that are inherent to the work. It's not because I'm suffering. Like I don't meditate and pray because I'm in so much pain. I meditate and pray because I feel awesome and I want to feel even more awesome. Yeah. And then the problems that I experience now in life are like the ones we were talking about earlier. You're like, how you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm having a tough day. And like, just so many people email me. <laughs> you know I mean? It's like, that's my problem. It's like too many people are sending me cool opportunities and it annoys the shit out of me because I don't have the ability to keep track of it all. You yeah, know, it's, it's like relative. the quality of problems is uh, much higher than like, oh, I just got towed and, uh, you know, I'm getting audited by the IRS. My toxic relationship just ended. I'm in, I'm in withdrawal from codependency and, you know, all the things that used to be like just part of my daily survival you know, not life, life. Yeah. I feel like we got to wrap this thing up, but I feel like something that I'm interested in is the shadow parts of myself that I am too self-righteous to realize are there. You know, I think like that's the most dangerous form of shadow is like the self-righteous one. Cause they're like, if you're, it's like a humble one, you know, and the person's like, you know, I'm, my life's falling apart. I don't really know what's going on. And like, yeah, I feel kind of collapsed, dark. And, you know, like that person's like, okay, cool. Like we can work with this. But the person that doesn't see any of that and really thinks that they are, you know, the bee's knees and they're doing the best thing. But meanwhile, that's actually coming from a bunch of, of darkness. Um, you know, that's where it gets, I think, a little bit more dangerous. And so that's something with myself. I just like, because that person looking out from, from this perspective, I can see that person I'm like, oh man, they don't even see it. It's like, okay, well, if they don't see it, what the hell don't I see in myself? You know, so I think it's an interesting thing to like, with some degree of regularity, do a little introspective look of like, okay, like, where do I think I'm the shit and I'm actually flailing? 
you know, I wonder with just like wrapping things up, is there yeah. any like, well, well, how does that hit you? But then I also want to have yeah. like, like kind of like take away, you know, from this conversation, because this is like a very like big conversation. I wonder as far as like the only tangible, kind worth having. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> what, is, what else right. is there to talk about? Right, exactly. you know? <laughs> but I wonder. Do you like goji berries right. or maca? Like what? We're past that. Yeah. Um, but but so I wonder as far as like tangible takeaways, kind of encapsulating such a big conversation. Is there some way to kind of condense that down into something that's like what could people take away from all this? Yes, uh, there definitely is. This is where, uh, this is a tricky part of it for me. And that is because I'm someone who's deeply committed to my own growth and evolution. Inherently, for that reason, I'm always looking at the bullshit that I need to overcome, whether it's, you know, something as seemingly innocent as using Instagram too much to the point where it's interfering with my daily life or I'm almost crashing into people because I can't resist refreshing it or something, right? But when we're always looking at like, okay, what is it that I need to excavate out and work on now? Like, where's the shadow? Like, where am I? Or maybe I'm becoming prideful and egotistical because I'm making something of myself and building a brand or whatever it might be. There's a real trap in like becoming addicted to fixing right to where all i ever see is like oh god i still need to work on this thing like i just got rid of this thing and now i discover about myself the other thing and how my teacher uh david hawkins not my teacher like i knew that we weren't homies texting but just like the guy that i've probably learned the most from in this realm uh talked about how when we're on a spiritual path, we're always seeing the pile of coal in front of us that needs to be shoveled. Meanwhile, ignoring the 10 piles of coal that are behind us that we work through, you know? So in my own arc, it's like, oh my God, I used to be such a fucking train wreck of a human being. If you just compare me now to me even 10 years ago, I mean, I'm like an enlightened master. <laughs> and I still need to be on the lookout for shit that's still blocking me and things that I need to overcome. So there's that balance i think that i don't know that you ever have a perfect relationship with because you don't want to just go to sleep and be like i'm done i'm cooked i'm fixed i'm enlightened because no one is or else you wouldn't be here in a human body anymore you would transcend the body and go off into the other realms and do your angelic guardian angel work or whatever you're supposed to do i think you might get little blips of it in life well yeah there, i have blips of it all the time but yeah. then i'm brought back down to earth by like wow i've got 140 emails i haven't answered how do i, <laughs> how I, think do I it's do like this? it's like everything it's like there's no such thing as a noun in the human experience like everything is a verb so it's like, oh, I'm like enlightening, you know, and then you're, you know, or whatever, or I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, and everything that you do is all a verb. It's all an ongoing action. Totally. There's, there's no point that you will reach. It's all a bunch of false summit after false summit after false summit. Yeah. You know, and then you'll have yeah, moments yeah. where you actually do see love and everything and you're like, oh, wow. And then like some bill comes in or you get a booty call on Instagram or something like that. And you're like, woof, back to, back to this shit. That, that was one of the questions I asked Byron Katie. I was like, so, uh, you know, Katie, are you enlightened? And she was, she didn't even answer the question. She leapfrogged that like on such a high level of understanding. I mean, it was almost laughable even the concept of enlightened i think her answer was i'm someone who doesn't suffer anymore and i'm like whatever that shit is give me that mm -hmm. but back to your takeaway so yeah. there's so there's that balance <laughs> of like okay there's, there's work to be done but let's not forget to like pat god on the shoulder and a little bit of ourselves for our willingness and our participation in that partnership with god through our own growth and evolution 
you know, let's acknowledge the the progress made and let's be balanced and, um, you know, discerning about what we think needs to get done. But in terms of what you said with the blind spot, there's two things that come to mind as a great takeaway. And that is, I believe that every wise person needs people around them that have more wisdom and more experience in the form of a mentor, a sponsor, a therapist, someone who's objectively outside of your life experience that can point out your blind spots based on the fact that they've experienced those blind spots, spotted them healed them and are now at a higher level than you. It's like that concept you hear in, in sort of in business and entrepreneurship, you never want to be the smartest guy in the room. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm working on that now as my, my friendships have all kind of shifted. And I was always the past few years and I don't, I, this sounds arrogant to say, but for lack of a better way to phrase it, I've always kind of been the smartest guy in the room and mentoring people and been kind of the leader of my little clique. And I'm, I don't like that anymore. I found other ways to be of service. I want to be around people like Byron Katie that don't even acknowledge enlightenment as a thing, <laughs> you know, and I'm still like, I got to become enlightened. Then I'll be no more pain. She's like, no, there's just no more pain. Yep. Um, so the, you know, seeking wise counsel, there's a phrase I love. I don't know where it originated from, but uh, show me a man that keeps his own counsel and I'll show you an idiot. Mm. Those are just things we can't see about ourselves. That's one mm. is seeking wise counsel. Um, and, and high vibration community that support you and see you and have the balls to be honest with you when it's necessary. Like a great partner, I think, can do that in a way that's supportive. You know, my girlfriend now, I mean, she's pointed, to, um, we've been together a short time. I've known her for a couple of years, but um, she points things out to me in a loving way. And I'm like, oh shit, I didn't, I didn't see I was doing that. You know, yeah. uh, the other thing is, and this is not a blanket recommendation for everyone. This is only my personal experience, but like a good therapist, in my experience, the entheogens, the plant medicines, are like a therapist on fucking steroids. Because yeah. they'll show you the shit. In my experience, again, I don't, I'm not an advocate that everyone goes off and you know runs to Peru and does ayahuasca. And I mean, it's something you really want to take into careful consideration and make sure you're at a place in life where you're stable enough and the set and setting and the shaman and the whole thing is legit. But in my own experience, I've seen things about myself that could have taken years of therapy and a six hour ayahuasca journey, I'm like, I'm just excavating the deepest shadow shit that I had no idea was there or things that I thought that I had worked through that are still very much activating in my day-to-day -day life. And I just like, I've gained so much in my limited experience. It's only been a little over a year that I even dipped my toe in that water. Um, but that is, for some people, it's not appropriate for everyone, I would venture to say. Although when I'm in one of those ceremonies, I'm like, everyone in the world should do this. You know, and yeah, I come out and I, you know, I go, well, just, they're going to find it on their own and if they're called to do it. But for me, man, I mean, I've grown so much in the past year from just being shown shit that was difficult for me to see. Just, there's just no way I could see things. And even if I did, I mean, just going back to the earlier part of our conversation, um, looking at, you know, kind of the first memorable trauma in my life. I've been to therapy. I've written about it. I've journaled. I've talked to people. I can talk about it without crying. I'm not emotionally triggered by it. It's not like shamey and shadowy. It's just, it's just like part of my novel. This is what it is. It's not good or bad. It's just part of my journey. But in that, in one of the first four ayahuasca ceremonies, oh my God, I was shown in such a clear way what a profoundly negative impact that experience had on my life. It just destroyed my life. It destroyed my fucking life. That abuse, it just set me on such a destructive path. It was so painful, so 
oh, just, God, it was just, it was just profoundly disruptive to a five, six-year-old kid. I don't even know how old I was, somewhere in there, you know? But then it was like, that's how it was being healed because I could really acknowledge the gravity of that experience and go like, whoa, okay, <sighs> like, let's really take a moment to take this in yeah. and, and acknowledge what had happened. And that's after years of therapy, after the steps a million times, Course in Miracle. I mean, you, Tony Robbins, fucking... You name like a modality of healing, I've done it. And in one night of ayahuasca, like poof, you know, quantum shift of healing and of self-awareness that was never reachable on the natch. Although all of those other things that I did brought me to the place where I could face that shadow with bravery, courage, and just absolute stillness and presence so that it could work through me and be healed. Yeah. I feel like the destroying, and then we really will wrap it up, but like the idea of destroying a life, it feels like uh, if you were digging a very deep well, there would be much more construction and much more dirt and like, you know, perceived destruction perhaps. You know, so it's like, oh my God, you're the, you're digging a well that's 3,000 feet deep. Like, oh my, this is terrible, you know, compared to the well that's like, we're just going to do like a little short one, you know, we're going to go 10 feet down. You know, and like from the outside looking at it, be like, wow, like that's not a very destructive well, you know, but like the 10 foot well, perhaps I mean, this is a stretch of analogy, but maybe you wouldn't get as much water. Yeah. You know, but, the, but in those moments of, of perceived destruction, I think a, a reframe for that could be like, no, we're just, we're just digging a deep one. You know? Yeah. It's, know. it's, well, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of setting a new baseline of understanding of just fundamental realization and acceptance of what the path has entailed and not i mean when i say oh it's so destructive i mean i guess that's putting kind of a negative spin on it but just just objectively without any judgment just watching the trajectory of my little childhood luke after that happened yeah. in such a real way was jarring because i had never had the felt sense of how impactful that was and how it just changed the course of my whole life yeah but again I have no regrets, really, as weird as that might sound, because I love the person that I am now, and I have qualities that I think um, are possible to have and to utilize and express because I had those experiences, you know? Yeah. And so it's it's not like out of a duality of a judging that as like a bad experience. It just is what it is, but it's one that I don't think without that assistance of those other dimensions and realms that you're able to en enter into in plant medicine, I don't know how I ever could have had that vantage point yeah. on that experience yeah and so the experience although it was like holy shit it kind of took my breath away when i could really see how that impacted me it also set a new baseline of healing like okay i acknowledge that cool now let's work our way up from there yeah now we know what we're dealing with the shadow has been completely shown upon with the fucking massive spotlight like one of those like prison yard spotlights you know it's not running away like i see it there it is okay let's go to the root of it let's go to the root of these patterns and i'll and i'll close this because i know we're out of time but I had another experience that illuminated so much for me. I saw my birth and that when I was born, I was taken, it was like this vision and I was taken, uh, my mom, you know, gave birth to me and she helped me for a second, was crying all happy like moms do. And then the nurses came and whisked me away and put me in this other room all by myself in an incubator and just left me alone there in the dark, no human contact. And I was like, well, that was weird. Next morning after ceremony, I text my mom and I'm like, hey mom, I'm in Costa Rica doing ayahuasca. She probably doesn't even know what it is, you know? But then I had this vision. I explained that to her and she was, she said, wow, that's fascinating because that's exactly what happened when you were born. And I had no idea that ever happened. Wow. Yeah. And then I was yeah, like- the memories were all there. Yeah. And it was, 
holy shit, that was my first abandonment. That was my first feeling of existential aloneness that I've carried with me my whole life. And Aaron, I still fucking have it sometimes. Yeah. So now seeing that, it's not like, oh, poor me, poor little Luke baby. No, it's like, awesome. Now I see why I've had intimacy problems my whole fucking life because you're going to leave me. Yeah. I'm not going to let you, I'm not going to be vulnerable and get close to you as a friend or a lover. It's like, I know what happens when that happens. Yeah. You get left alone in a fucking room with no hugs and kisses. (laughs) Yeah. And no connection. You know, that was my first broken heart. As weird as that might sound, like tough guys listening to this are like, dude, no, man up, pussy. But it's just the reality, dude. It's like, that alone has enabled me to open myself up to love and intimacy and closeness and also realize that I have the power to change that about my life as an adult. I'm not that little baby. I'm not that little boy. Those energies still exist within me because they're integrated into me as the man that I am. But now I have the power. I can call people. I can reach out. I can build a network of friends and connection. And I can choose to let someone in my heart as a partner and love them and be loved and be vulnerable because I know where those... I've unraveled those parts of my consciousness and even physical brain, I think, that equate closeness to you're going to be left and be hurt. And now I can override that with new behaviors and new thought patterns and let all of that go. But without seeing it, it's very rude. And the first hour I'm born, you know, is where it all started, right? Yeah. With that awareness, now I have... Probably before that even. Right. Past lifetimes and even in the womb and all that. Yeah. Part conception. Yeah. There was a lot of drama i'm sure going on while i was in mom um so anyway that you know that's to say in in the takeaways it's it's wise counsel you know in the form of therapy coach mentor whatever and then for some not for all perhaps maybe the exploration of plant medicines in the proper setting very thought out very guided very safe make sure you're fucking ready for it or even in a clinical setting which would probably be even safer with things like psilocybin and mdma and ketamine and all the things that are now sort of loosening up from a regulatory standpoint to allow us to facilitate a deeper healing and have those kinds of insights that are impossible to have in your waking beta state like hey i want to figure out what my problems are you just can't get there there's too many layers of it without some kind of assistance whether it be exogenous from a substance or exogenous from another person that possesses some wisdom and insight into you that you're unable to access yeah i perceive the plants as just like another one of the therapists but they're just like a really potent like good goodwill <laughs> goodwill hunting robin williams <laughs> you're like oh damn oh man you got some yeah, yeah. anyways uh yeah. where should people go from here what's the ghost direction i so greatly appreciate getting to share these moments in the sauna Oh man, it's the first podcast I've ever recorded in the sun. I'm, oh, like, my, I'm like going, man, now would be a good time to have glutes. You yeah. know? <laughs> this is where being the Caucasian male hurts. Um, I mean, I guess there are Caucasians with a big time. ass too, but um, I definitely have the flat white ass. I'm feeling it on this board. Oh, that's good. Uh, but I love, good. I love me some infrared sauna, so it's good. And and I just, you know, before I plug shit and make people go follow me and give me money eventually or something. Um, <laughs> I just want to acknowledge you as a seeker and as a really good friend. I appreciate that, man. Likewise, I feel the exact same way. It's it's so special to be able to have a deeply connected conversation with someone and someone who has no agenda and is real and accepts you for who you are and you accept them and you support each other and there's no competition, even though we joke about our iTunes ratings and stuff. (laughs) It it really is a joke. It doesn't matter. Um, But I just want to acknowledge that in the work that you're doing. And it's, it's just a cool time that we live in that we're able to at least for the time being, I mean, a lot of the censorship is terrifying that's going on now. You know, had I said the word, 
the V word for immunizations, we could get taken off the fucking internet or something, you know? Um, but for now, we are having this independent media surge and we can have long form bits of content and share ideas and experience like this in a way that's never been possible before on a large scale, yeah. you know? And so it's just, it's, I just have so much respect and I just honor people like you that are doing the work and helping me to have my own experience on my own journey. This is how I learn and contextualize my experiences by talking about them. That's yep. just the way that I learn. I'm a vocal person. You might've guessed that because I won't let the episode end. Um, <laughs> so thank you. Uh, where people can find me is, uh, you know, my, my mothership is lukestory.com, S-T-O-R-E-Y. And all my videos and podcasts and content are there. But I think the thing that I make the biggest contribution in that's the meatiest is my podcast, The Lifestylist, which you've been on like five times an hour or something. Yeah. Uh, and The Lifestylist is just like my pride and joy. And, um, you know, I get to have, like today, my episode with Joe Dispenza came out. And I mean, like, how, who am I to sit down with people at that level? And I don't mean sure. that as like to be self-deprecating. I just go, dude, if Joe Dispenza would have met me 20 years ago, he would run, you know what I mean? Uh, so it's just been such a gift to be able to have those conversations. And like we're doing today to share those with tens of thousands of people. I'm just, you know, tickled shitless. So the Lifestylist podcast is, is really the thing that I put the most energy into content wise. And I'm working on a book and some retreats and things that'll be percolating later on. But the podcast is where I'd love people to kind of, you know, get into my work. And uh, on Instagram, I'm at Luke Story. And Instagram is a real shit show for me. I have a lot of fun on the the stories and the live feeds and stuff. I post all kinds of wacky stuff, such as when I go do ceremony. I mean, I don't bring it into ceremony. Yeah, I was surprised by that. I was like, Damn. I do play by play reports on everything I do because I want people to be able to share the experience with me and be opened up to new things. So yeah, I go sit in the ice bath with my live and explain like how you breathe while I'm doing it and just. I could just document my life um, and the ways in which I'm healing myself and growing so that other people can go, hmm, that looks interesting. I'll try that. Oh, it's cool. Well, I appreciate you putting it out there, man. It's been. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, I've, I've been, I've gotten to learn a lot from you over the years, even from afar as well. Um, and yeah, I'm just so immensely grateful to get to orbit our orbits slowly converge together and i'm just so grateful for the opportunity for that time man so i appreciate you likewise thanks dude all right over and out thanks for tuning in on to uh also i think this is the, the first time i've probably pushed through my body dysmorphia issues and been shirtless oh yeah look at on you. the internet look what you did you did that well the last one so don't post last, any comments about my man boobs the last crush for the last guys. video we did that was you were so happy about it did very well All right, oh yeah yeah that's right no this is the second time because we did the, the breathing time. exercise every time you hang out with me you end up taking your shirt God, off damn that's it and effect. i gotta take my shirt off with the most ripped guy in fucking hollywood like why can't i be sitting here with a fat ass and like i look like the one who's cut you know yeah. well you don't want to be the smartest person in the room or the, or, or the, the most, most fit yeah that's a good point i'm inspired later Thank you for joining me on this rather deep and somewhat intimate conversation with my friend Aaron Alexander on the Align podcast. I'd like to invite you to go back and listen to past episodes of Aaron on my show. Not only is he a great interviewer and one that can elicit some real truth from a guest, but also a great guest himself. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And that said, I will be back in your ears on Tuesday with our guest Panache Desai. Before we close, I want to invite you to be the first to know when my brand new EMF Home Safety Masterclass series drops. You get on the wait list and save yourself a hundred bucks if you catch me before it launches 
by going to lukestory.com slash EMF masterclass. So again, get on the wait list at lukestory.com slash EMF masterclass. The day this launches, you will get an email with your discount code. You can also text me on any US phone to the number 44222 and text the word, all one word, EMF Masterclass. That's EMF Masterclass to the number 44222. I'm going to shoot you an email. You're going to get $100 off. You're going to sign up for this class. And you're going to spend four hours and seven video modules and six bonus videos learning everything you could ever want to know about the EMF in your living environment and how to fix it. I'm really excited about this course. I spent a lot of time putting it together and uh, I think you're really going to enjoy it. So make sure to get on the wait list at lukestory.com slash EMF masterclass. And with that, I wish you well and thank you so much again for listening.